Psalm 73. We'll read the whole psalm this evening. Psalm 73. This is God's holy, infallible, and inspired Word. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is God's Word. Let's pray. O God, You have been good, You are good, and we know that You will be good. We ask now as we come under Your Word that we would receive it not as a word from man, but as it really is indeed a word from God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may have noticed as we started reading through Psalm 73, the heading at the top, some of your Bibles may include this, 
that Psalm 73 is the first psalm in Book 3 of the Psalter. Some of you may know that the psalms have been divided up into five different books. And Psalm 73 is, again, the first of the book, first of the psalms in Book 3. And one author has sought to try and give headings to these five books. And although there is not a one-to-one, certainly there's overlap between, say, book one and book five, nevertheless, he tries and gives a heading for these books. And book three, he gives the heading of the king's crisis over God's promises. The king's crisis over God's promises. And that's precisely what we see in Psalm 73. We see the crisis moment for Asaph over the promises of God. The second thing we notice as we begin reading is that this is a psalm of Asaph. We meet Asaph in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16. He is David's pick for the choir master in Israel. Scholars debate exactly who Asaph, whether or not Asaph was this figure referred to as the author of this psalm. Some would say this is a psalm of David that Asaph performed, Asaph utilized in worship. Others say maybe it's a psalm of the sons of Asaph. Nevertheless, it is a psalm of Asaph, and we're going to consider under four different headings this evening this psalm. First, we're going to see in verse 1, Asaph's confession of faith. Asaph's confession. Second, in verses 2 through 15, Asaph's crisis moment. Thirdly, verses 16 down through verse 22, we see Asaph's clarity. And fourthly, and finally, in the following verses, Asaph's certainty. So first, in verse 1, Asaph's confession. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Some versions say, Surely God is good. This is a a note of certainty about who God is. God is good to His people. And this is something that we all need to hear Because what Asaph wants us to understand is that despite all that I faced, despite all that I'm going to face as you read through this psalm, here's the one thing I want you to know. It's God is good to His people. And this is exactly where we, as those reading it, want to end up by the end. Saying this that whatever happens, whether it's out there, whether it's whatever is going on in here, know this, that God is good. And He isn't just doing good. It's not that God just does good things, but who He is, is good. And it's not just sometimes It's not just when it seems to be the case, but God is good and He does good all the time. 
This is Asaph's confession. This is the confession of the church throughout the history of the church. It's easy to think, well, we know that God is simply, He's sovereign, and He's, and he's up in the sky, and He's orchestrating all things. We can affirm that. But it's one thing to say that God is, is just up there and sovereign. It's another thing to say that He is sovereign and good. So that He is working all things according to the counsel of His will, and that that indeed is good. We can think of people who are in places of power, sovereigns or rulers, who are indeed with great power. And they do as they please. But God is not like that, because those who abuse the power are not good. Yes, they have power, but God is both the one who has ultimate power, but at the same time, all that He does is good. was the case for Asaph, and it's the case for you this evening, if you've placed your faith in Christ. God is good, and He is good to you all the time. Well, who are the recipients of this goodness? We read in verse 1b. It's to those who are pure in heart. Or in verse 1a, it's to Israel. Further clarified as those who are pure in heart. In other words, God is good towards His people. Now, we affirm rightly, as Scripture affirms, that there is a common grace, a common goodness, a general mercy which God bestows upon all. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 and 45, speaks of this common grace that the Father bestows upon both evil and good rain. Acts chapter 14, Paul also speaks of this. God sends rain in due season for all mankind. God is good, in a sense, to all people. Non-Christians enjoy many blessings. Enjoy the love of a spouse or the love of a family. These are graces, these are good things which God bestows upon all mankind. But there is also a sense, and this is the sense in which we understand Asaph's comments, that there is a special goodness. There is a particular mercy which God bestows upon His people all the time. You see, the non-Christian cannot affirm Romans 8.28. But the Christian can say with Paul that all things work together for good. All things. Whatever's happening in your life, whatever trials, whatever dangers, whatever snares, are ultimately for your good and for the glory of God. And Asaph describes his crisis. Asaph describes the snare which he faced in verses 2 and following. Look at the text. He says, but I knew this, but, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now, some of you may know the feeling of walking down onto the beach, down in maybe Ocean City or Wildwood, and you walk out on the rocks, the jetty, 
And you begin to take that next step forward and the waves have just crashed upon the rocks. And that next step, you begin to slip. And that's the feeling Asaph has. As he is going through life, he knows one thing and yet reality doesn't seem to line up with that truth. My feet had almost slipped. Well, what caused the slip? You see it in verses 3 and following. He was envious of the wicked because they were the ones who were appearing to prosper. Verse 12 is a great summary verse for this. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease they increase in riches. And so Asaph, he knows one thing to be true. God is good to Israel. And yet when I look out, it's not Israel who's flourishing, but it's the wicked. Always at ease. We see various forms of prosperity that Asaph describes. First, we see bodily prosperity in verse 4b. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Oh, we read this and we think, that's not very appealing. I'm not very envious of people who as Asaph describes, are fat and whose eyes swell out through fatness. That's not appealing for us. Rather, we think the person who is having the most success with the new diet, that's the person we would be envious of. Well, in the ancient times, sign of prosperity was indeed that the rulers were those who had enough provisions, so much so that they increased in weight. This is the nature of the rulers in the ancient times. Often those who didn't have these means were often those who lacked in weight. And so Asaph looks out and he sees the bodily prosperity of the wicked. He says, my feet were slipping. We also see not only bodily prosperity, but in verse 5 we see other forms of physical prosperity. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They don't seem to be getting sick. They don't need to go to the doctors. They're the ones who simply go along life without any trials, without any difficulties. And not only that, not only bodily and physical prosperity, but verse 12, they have financial prosperity. Always at ease, Asaph says. They increase their riches. They're those who, when you go into work, are the ones who cut corners and who actually seem to win out in the process. You know them. You work with some of these people. Always taking advantage. Always seeking to gain an upper hand through unjust means and ways. And yet, they're the ones who, when the time comes for a promotion... It seems as though you're sitting watching them excel, increase in riches. But not only that, it's, it's one thing for a Christian to look out into the world and to see the non-Christian flourishing in these outward means, right? We can, we can, maybe we can push through that. But notice verses 9 And 11, it even seems that in the spiritual realm, the wicked are prospering. Verse 9, 
They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. In verse 11, they say, How can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Their pride fills them and they simply say, the God of yours is a joke. He doesn't see. He doesn't know what's going on. There is no God. I'm doing as I please. And I'm flourishing. Sinclair Ferguson commenting on this psalm says that Asaph is not only troubled with the question of why do bad things happen to good people, but also why do so many good things happen to bad people? It's not just one thing here and there. It's an all-of-life reality. And so he concludes, Asaph in verses 13 through 15, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I've spent my life seeking to faithfully serve the Lord. And this is the result. Wicked prospering. And maybe you've experienced that in your own life. You come to a point in your life, maybe you have already come to this point, maybe you will in the future, but you come to this point in your life and you simply say, it just isn't worth it. It's just not worth serving the Lord anymore. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. You've been serving the Lord and yet you feel like it's simply a waste while you watch those in the world who seem to have a family that's flourishing, a career that's flourishing, a business that's flourishing, and you say, Lord, where have you been? I've sought to serve you. It seems in vain. So Asaph is, to put it bluntly, confused. He doesn't really understand what is going on in his life. But he has this moment of clarity. Verses 16 and 17. Really the central portion of the psalm. Notice that it is when Asaph goes into the sanctuary of God that there is clarity. That the scales fall from his eyes as he begins to finally see the world as God sees the world. He goes into God's house and all of a sudden, he has proper focus of life. Imagine the scene. Asaph wakes up one Sabbath morning. Mrs. Asaph is next to him. He rolls over and he says, I don't really feel like going to church this morning. You've had the feeling too, if you're honest. I don't feel like going. And she says, honey, you know you have to go. You, you have to lead the choir. So he stumbles out of his tent. He doesn't want to be in church, frankly. He's unhappy. People are greeting him at the door and he's simply unhappy. He doesn't want to really talk to anyone. But he comes into God's house and something catches his eye. And all of a sudden, he has this 
clarifying thought that what just took place out there, his feet stumbling, his foot slipping, all of a sudden, that makes sense. But it's in the house of God that there's anything that we need today It is to be in God's house. Because it is in God's house that we begin to see the world rightly. If you simply operate your life outside the doors of the church, you begin to take on the thinking of those whom you are interacting with. And so six days, the, 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 the things of this world, the media, the ideologies, the, frankly, junk of the world is fluttering your mind. And so the Lord says, here you go. You have an entire day to refocus. And it's actually at the beginning of the week in the New Covenant to springboard us out into the week with that clarity as we go into the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, regarding entering the house of God, people who neglect attendance at the house of God are not only being unscriptural, let me put it bluntly, they are fools. It is a very foolish Christian who does not attend the sanctuary of God as often as he possibly can. End quote. The reason Lloyd-Jones would say such a thing is not as though it is simply showing up and checking a box, but what Lloyd-Jones and many others recognize is that it's in the house of God that you begin to see things rightly. And why would we neglect such a privilege? Why would we neglect a moment of clarity to live our lives as God would have us live our lives? Another pastor commenting says that coming into the sanctuary was the first step in Asaph's spiritual recovery. We too must come before God. Do not try to solve your problems apart from God, but put them into God's presence. For in the sanctuary is where spiritual recovery begins. And so as we come into God's house, we approach the throne of grace in prayer. We sing the praises of God and we hear Him speak to us. The fuzziness of mind begins to become more clear. And that can be within our own struggles as we face the providences of God which seem to be, as William Cooper says, frowning providences. just simply doesn't seem to be right. Well, we come into God's house and we hear, we sing His words to us, His promises to us so that we don't fall into the trap that Asaph fell into. But the question is, really, what did Asaph see? It's kind of intriguing as you read. You may be thinking, what is it that Asaph saw when he came into the sanctuary of God? 
Well, it's not explicit, but I think his response in verse 17 gives us clear indication of maybe one of the objects that he would have seen. He says in verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Well, what object, what thing in the sanctuary would have made him think of the end of the wicked? Well, what about the altar? The altar is there, and on that altar he sees the blood of the sacrifices being spilled. And what his mind immediately goes to is that I have a substitute pictured, typified in that sacrifice. But the wicked and the evil one doesn't. And so the wicked will pay for their own sins. And so although they may seem to be flourishing now, there will come a time when he will be like that Offering, bloody, and killed. So it is here, Asaph sees possibly the altar, and his mind goes to this sacrifice that takes away and takes his place. But as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, the blood of bulls and goats did not take away sins, but what did take away sins is the blood of the one, final, end-time sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Himself. And God's wrath, His end-time wrath, which is laid up, has been poured out at the cross for His people. And so, when we approach those who have believed upon Christ, when we approach that end time, we say, there is therefore now no condemnation. We don't face that end time wrath, because the end time wrath has already been poured out on the cross. But the wicked have no substitute. The wicked have no final sacrifice. And so, rather than having Christ take the wrath, they will take the wrath. It's in the house of God that Asaph begins to see these things and recognize that ultimately what seems to be going on is not the ultimate. So, as Psalm 37 says, the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day coming. Where else would you get that but in the house of God? Where else would you hear those words? The unrighteous outside are not going to tell you that. Why would they tell you that? Oh yeah, God, you know, he's got a day for me. No, it's in God's house reading God's Word, singing God's praises, praying back to God the very prayers He has given us that we come to that conclusion. So that's Asaph's clarity. And finally, verses 23 through 28, we see Asaph's certainty come forth at the end of the psalm. And there's two aspects that I want to highlight for us as we begin to conclude. 
First, it's God's presence. Asaph is certain of God's presence. Look at verse 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, excuse me, you will receive me into glory. The picture is of a father who is walking with his child down that street and he is guiding him. And he is ensuring the safety of his child or the shepherd who is guiding his sheep, walking along with rod and staff. Interestingly enough, both of those images are represented for us in Scripture of how God deals with his people. He is the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is also described the first person of the Trinity, as Father. And so, Asaph recognizes that God is continually with him, guiding him along life's way. He is present beside him. And this is the grand theme throughout Scripture. It's hard to even come to a new book of the Bible and not read these words. I am with you, God's promise to his people. Joshua Chapter 1, verse 5. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Or David in Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Or Israel, in the midst of exile. Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I am with you. And then we have the ultimate, consummate God with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Emmanuel. God with us. But we say, but, but He has ascended. He is no longer with us. And we read John's Gospel and Jesus says, it's better that I go away because if I go away, I'll send a helper. So that no longer is Christ simply bodily in Galilee, and he's only able to commune with the disciples around him. But now, having ascended into heaven and pouring out his Spirit, he communes with us all, universally, at all times. And it's that reality that we need to know, because there are hard providences that God sends our way. There are difficulties that we must face. As Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trials, as though it was something strange. But rather we embrace them. We recognize that this is the refiner's fire. But we have this promise that God, who sends the hard providence, is with us in the hard providence. Asaph not only knows God's presence, but secondly, he knows that God Himself is Asaph's portion and possession. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God 
is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When the Westminster divines met in the 1600s, and they're starting to formulate what we now have as the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Shorter and larger catechisms, they come to question and answer one of the shorter catechism. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What, what, what passages were in mind when they came up with this notion that one of the things that man must do is enjoy God? Psalm 73, verse 25. What does it mean to enjoy God? It means to enjoy Him in such a way that there is nothing in heaven or on earth that you desire more than Him. It's the spouse that you want to be with. It's the best friend that you want to spend as much time as you can with. It's the activity that you're always wanting to do. It's that times a billion. It's God who is our treasure. So that we can say, there's nothing even in heaven that I want more than you, O God. It's to love. It's to value. It's to cherish Him more than anything else. And also, in verse 26, Asaph, words which we love as we read them, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God, indeed, is the strength. A portion, John Newton summarizes this well in his hymn. He says, Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all is boasted pomp and show, but solid joys and lasting treasure." None but Zion's children know. Only Zion's children know what it means to have a solid joy and a lasting treasure because God is their possession. And nothing else in this world is solid. Nothing else in this world is lasting. But God, who is eternal and who does not change, is lasting. He, and no one else, is our portion. And so Asaph concludes in verses 27 and 28. He says, all that's happened to me, all that I've experienced, all the things that I've had to go through, were not in vain. Yes, I came to know the Lord better. But, secondly, it is for this purpose... Verse 28, that I may tell of all your works. You see, it's actually in the valleys of life that we not only come to know the Lord better, it's through the refiner's fire that the dross is consumed and the gold is refined, but in the midst of suffering. And as we go through that suffering, what we also learn is that as we go through the suffering, and then, by God's grace, someone another comes into our path, and they're experiencing something similar to what you've experienced, well, hello. 
we have for us in front of our eyes somebody that we can come alongside to and say, the Lord was with me in my troubles, in my difficulties. You can come and you can tell them, Christian or non-Christian, of all the mighty works which not only God has done in history, but which God has done for you in your trials. And so, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever you will go through, it will be for the glory of God, but it will also enable you to tell of the mighty works of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word, which is so clear. That pierces through the confusion of our day and gives us a word of certainty. Gives us a word of clarity. Gives us a moment of even sanity. Father, we thank you for the work of your Spirit to enlighten our minds to give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. We pray that in the midst of the flames of afflictions which we will experience as followers and disciples of Christ, we ask that this one thing would be on our minds and that we would not only know it, but that we would experientially know it, that you are with us. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.